please turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is where we will continue our study this evening, as has been introduced, I think, in every study, just as a way of reminder of the form and structure of this psalm. Even in your English Bible, you likely have the stanza breaks in your copy of the Scriptures Every eight verses, there is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet that is attached to those eight verses. That would be a stanza. And then the, the Hebrew letters go consecutively in order of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the reason for that is the author, under the inspiration of God, used a poetic form of using the first word of every verse And the first word of every verse starts with the Hebrew letter that corresponds with that stanza. So, for instance, the first eight verses all begin with a word that starts with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then you continue that pattern until we get to verse 49 tonight. Verse 49 to 56, that is the seventh stanza of Psalm 119, and so the seventh letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Zion, and so every verse in the original Hebrew begins with a word that starts with the letter Zion. And so as you think about the beautiful and the cohesive structure of this psalm, it reminds us something and at least allows us to infer something about this psalmist. At the base level, he obviously knew the Hebrew alphabet. Further than that, he probably studied Hebrew literature and poetry to be able to construct this psalm in this way. He obviously had a deep and abiding knowledge of the scriptures, and thus he had a deep and abiding knowledge of the God of the scriptures. But he didn't write this psalm, as it were, in an ivory tower He wasn't a monastery monk that was trying to get away from the cares of the world, but he wrote this psalm in the midst of living himself as a sinner and then living in the midst of other sinners in this fallen world. So maybe in a word we could attach to him, he was a pilgrim. Just as we are, He sojourned in an earthly land, but he obviously knew that this was not his final destination. He, as the old song says, was just passing through, seeking a better city whose builder and founder was God, which means as a sinner himself and as living in a broken world, he experienced life in a fallen world. He experienced things such as affliction and pain and distress. I'm sure each one of us could echo the sentiments that that is our experience as well. He experienced derision and mocking and persecution because of his faithfulness to God and his word. And perhaps you could again echo the sentiment of what it's like to live life as a follower of Christ and facing the persecution and the mocking, even if it's not directed towards you, just living in the atmosphere of a world system that hates God and hates His Word. He also experienced weariness on this journey called life. Perhaps you yourself have grown weary of dealing with your own sin and the sinful actions of others. And as that weariness grows alongside of it, grows this desire to be face-to-face with your God. And because of his experiences as a pilgrim in a fallen world, he needed a faithful, steadfast, sustaining companion that would encourage him on this earthly journey. And because you have your experiences, maybe things that you look at in the past, maybe quite presently you're experiencing difficulty, suffering, persecution, feeling the reality of being a pilgrim. 
And certainly, as long as the Lord leaves us on this broken and fallen earth, he will in his providence bring future trials into our lives so that he can shape us into the image of Christ and deepen our faith in his goodness. And so it should be of no surprise to us as we've been studying this psalm that when this psalmist looked for a faithful, steadfast companion on his journey, He found it in the Word of God because the Word of God raised him to deepen his knowledge, his experience, his relationship with his God, the one who brings perfect comfort in the midst of our difficulties. And so that for us is the lesson tonight, that in our lifelong journey, we need that same kind of faithful, steadfast companion that the Word of God provides for us. So if you found your place in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 49, allow me to read this stanza. The psalmist writes, Remember the word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. And so we'll learn today, tonight, I'll entitle this sermon, The Pilgrim's Companion. The Pilgrim's Companion. And as we walk through the verses, hopefully it just aids you maybe in remembering the structure of these eight verses And as you recall, the structure, hopefully it will remind you also of the truth from God's word that we need tonight. And so I've broken these eight verses up into three different points. And under the heading of, there are three reasons in this psalm, three reasons that God's people need God's word in their earthly pilgrimage. Three reasons that God's people need God's word through their earthly pilgrimage. And we'll see the first point in verses 49 and 50. What's reason number one of why God's people need God's word on their earthly pilgrimage? Verses 49 and 50 teach it that we need comfort when we are afflicted. God's word then provides the comfort that we need when we are afflicted. He begins in verse 49 with an appeal, with a prayer, a petition to his God. What does he ask? He says, remember the word or remember your word. Now right off the bat, maybe your, your knowledge of the scriptures and of systematic theology would 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 think, why would this psalmist, who because he knew his God and knew the word, I'm sure he was aware that God is omniscient. He never needs to learn anything. He never forgets anything. So why would this psalmist pray to this omniscient God and ask him to remember something? One other way to think about this word remember would be to translate it, pay attention to. So this is a faith-filled personal request that he's asking the Lord to pay attention to him. Look upon the circumstances that I'm in, and involved in that as well, is not just look upon me, but act according to what you have spoken to me. Commentator Childs notes that the essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone based on a previous commitment. So again, he's not asking the Lord to take, as it were, a dusty book of promises, 
off a shelf and blow it off and leaf through and try to find something to recall his memory. Oh, that's right. That's what I gave you. That's what I promised you. That's the word I spoke to you. But no, this psalmist is appealing for the Lord to remember or pay attention to, not because he doubts the Lord's memory, but because he's read of and also, I'm sure, experienced God's faithfulness to his word, and so he's desiring God to act again on his behalf. And what does he ask the Lord to remember? Remember the word. Commentator Moyer says, this is revealed truth that is personally delivered from the Lord himself. In other words, it's the revealed word of God that this psalmist had. He's appealing to God to act according to promises that God had given him directly through the Word of God. It's also helpful for us to note the posture of this psalmist as he's requesting this. What does he call himself? He calls himself the Lord's servant, demonstrating proper humility And he understands that there is nothing within himself as a sinful human being that would deserve God's favor, would deserve God's faithfulness to him. And yet the fact that he puts himself in the category of the Lord's servant actually puts himself in a position to receive God's favor. Psalm 135 verse 14 states, the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. So the fact that he recognizes his lowly state as one of Yahweh's servants actually puts him in a position to be a recipient of God's favor. And so the object of this first appeal is God and his word, And then he tells us why he makes this appeal in the second half of verse 49. Why does he ask the Lord to remember his word to him? It's because the word of God spoken to him is what has caused, and he's asking for it again, really, has caused hope to well up within him. Now, you may have a translation that instead of using in which, they may say for or because you have made me hope, but I appreciate the translation, at least in the New American Standard, which says, in which, maybe some translations will say, upon which. And the translation of that conjunction is really helpful because it connects even the, directly the source of the psalmist's hope. In other words, what he's saying is, O Lord, remember the word or these promises that you've made to your servant. And that word is the grounds upon which you have caused hope to well up within me. You have caused me to hope. Spurgeon notes here that because of the the way he words this request, he's not asking for a new word of revelation or knowledge from God. But he's asking God to act upon what God has already revealed to him. Spurgeon says this, God would not cause us to hope without cause. The Lord is the one who raises our hopes on his promises, and I love this, and God will never disappoint. And so this psalmist is not drumming up some kind of wishful thinking. We'll use the word hope in our everyday vocabulary, like, got outdoor plans tomorrow. I certainly hope it doesn't rain in the afternoon. It's this wishful thinking. But rather, this hope that this psalmist is speaking of is sure. It's a confident expectation because it's not rooted in him. It's rooted in the Lord. God is the agent of hope, and his word is, is the means through which that hope is given to the psalmist. So to put it bluntly, all of this hope comes from without the psalmist. He's meditating on God's promises, and God in his grace 
stirs up hope through his meditation, and that led the psalmist to make this appeal to the Lord. Just the, the, the tense and the, the verb form that he uses in you have made me hope says it's something that's coming from outside of me that's happening within me. So why did this psalmist desire for the Lord to remember his word that he's given to him? This word that's caused him to hope. Well, verse 50 answers that question. If you look at your text again, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. He's afflicted. He's suffering. And in these two verses, we don't know exactly what the cause of this turmoil is. But he turns to God and he turns to his word. That is certainly not the perspective of the unbelieving world. They would say, this is my comfort in my affliction, and then just fill in the blank with anything out other than God and his word. But unfortunately, to our disgrace, even as God's people, we have filled in that blank with things other than God and his word at times in our own lives. Maybe we have acted as if we're, we would write this, this is my comfort and my affliction, that I still have some financial stability, that I still have a relationship, I still have my family, or I can still find joy in food and drink and recreation. And don't get me wrong, all of those are good gifts from God to us, but those are windows through which we should be pointed to the giver of the gifts. They're not the end in and of themselves. Just like the world does, and unfortunately sometimes we do, when we look at anything outside of God and his word for comfort and affliction, it's as if we, we have this gaping wound and we are wheeled into the emergency room. We receive the anesthetic, which numbs the pain, dulls it, but then it's as if we get pushed right back into our hospital room with nothing being done about the wound. We may have some temporary relief, but when we wake up from it, the pain is still there and it's probably worse. The cause of the pain, the festering wound, is probably even getting worse. And so it's really no lasting, true comfort from the wound or here from the affliction. So, how did the psalmist find true and lasting comfort in his affliction? Well, we'll seeing it together with verse 49, he asks God to act on his word. He declares that then these promises that God has given me, these are the only hope I have, the only source of comfort what else do these promises do? The last part of that second part of verse 50, these promises or the word that God has given him revived him. They quite literally breathed life into something that once was dead. Commentator Ross notes that it is the nature of God's word to revive spiritual life. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, you probably know this verse, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring, or the same word, reviving the soul. And again, is he looking within himself? Absolutely not. He's still, especially the grammar that he used, is understanding that this spiritual life that God gives him, it only comes from God. It's not found in him. He appeals to God and his character. He obviously understands that God is faithful, God makes promises, God keeps promises, and they caused him comfort, and they've revived his soul, all divine activities. And whose comfort does he receive in whose affliction? There's a very personal nature that Spurgeon points out in verse 50. He says, this is my comfort. In my affliction. In other words, he's saying God dispenses necessary, daily, sufficient grace. He doesn't, God doesn't, as it were, 
pile up and fill up a dump truck full of all the grace that we're going to need for the rest of our life, back it up on the front lawn of our life, dump it out, hand us a rake and say, okay, now it's up to you to kind of spread this grace out and comfort that you're going to need in trials through, throughout the lawn. Make sure that you don't pile up too much here or too much here, but make sure it's even. And although sometimes we like that, Lord, I think I actually need a little bit more of your grace in this difficult trial, but what we would do is we'd, we'd pile it up on over here. We'd look at a smaller trial and say, you know what, I think I can actually handle that on my own, but that's not how God works in his dispensing of grace. But rather, as this psalmist experienced, my comfort, my affliction, God supplies to you the grace as much as you need, when you need it, in exactly the right way that you need it, at the place where you need it. We could go on and on about God's perfect providence in giving us his grace. And let's not forget then that this is not, again, some pie-in-the-sky psalmist. But we have the same source of comfort that he had. In fact, we have more. We know that at this point in the giving of God's word that the full canon or the full scope of Scripture has not been given yet. He had, as it were, everything he needed, but a limited amount of God's word at his disposal, and yet he still knew that it was the source of comfort in every affliction. We not only have the whole canon of Scripture, we also have the indwelling Holy Spirit who illuminates our eyes to see truth from God's word, who who stamps and imprints these promises of God and his word on our lives. This is the Holy Spirit that Christ himself told his disciples before he ascended that it's actually going to be better for you to have God within you than to have the Son of God walk among you and beside you. And so we must affirm with this psalmist that our comfort in affliction must come from God-given faith in the promises of his word applied to our hearts through the work of the encourager, the comforter. Maybe you've heard the Holy Spirit given a name. It's tied to a Greek word, the paraclete. In fact, in the Greek translation of this verse, taking it from Hebrew and translating it into Greek, they use that word. The paraclete or parakaleo is the verb form of this word comfort, which literally means that which comes alongside of us and encourages us, admonishes us, gives us comfort. And so God's word is necessary for him because it gives him comfort in affliction. And I'm sure he would testify of this as we would that many times the comfort and the hope that we receive from God through his word doesn't mean that the storm clouds break that the sun begins to shine, the rain stops, the thunder and the lightning stops. Sometimes that happens. But probably the majority of our experience would be this hope is, as we just sung, it's more like an anchor that a ship drops in the midst of a storm that tethers it, does not allow it to be blown into the rocks that would smash it and cause it to sink just like God's word applied to our hearts by God himself, keeps us from making a shipwreck of our faith in the midst of trials and difficulties. So we we should follow this psalmic example, taking heart because God's word comforts afflicted pilgrims. We should appeal to the Lord based on what he's revealed to us. We can affirm then the comfort and the reviving work of God's promises, even in the midst of affliction. And sometimes that affliction comes from within. There's fears and there are doubts that need to be quelled by the promises of God's word. But there are other times when this suffering can come from outside of us. So, 
Reason number two God's people needs, need God's word in the midst of their earthly pilgrimage is because God's word provides boldness when we are persecuted. God's word provides boldness in persecution. We'll see that in verses 51 to 53. If you would look there again, look at our text, verse 51, the arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Here, unlike verse 50 where there is this unclear what's causing his affliction, here it's very clear. The wicked around him are mocking him, persecuting him, and they're flaunting the fact that they're forsaking God's law. And yet, in the midst of all of this, in verse 51, the psalmist asserts his faithfulness. Do you remember how the book of Psalms begins in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, a few verses down, but the ungodly are not so. Like many other places in Scripture, that paints a stark contrast between really just two groups of people in this world. There's godly and ungodly, righteous and unrighteous, those who have Christ as their Savior, those outside of Christ. You could use whatever descriptors you would want to use, and that's exactly the picture that the psalmist is painting here. He is the servant of the Lord in verse 49. And now he describes the work of the proud or the arrogant or the wicked in verses 51 and 53. These are exactly like the scorners in Psalm 1. And they don't keep their practice of evil privately, as wicked as that would be. But now they openly and arrogantly mock and scoff at those who desire to follow God's word. And the way he words this persecution in verse 51, this is not just a passing comment from someone who you don't have a relationship with. It's not just living in the atmosphere of a wicked world where we're tempted to be discouraged with what we see around us, but he says this kind of derision, this kind of persecution, they utterly deride me. He's saying it's heavy, it's weighty. It's like a backpack of bricks on my spiritual shoulders that's just dragging me down. So how does he respond? Yet I do not turn aside from your law. He goes back to the Word of God. I hope we're starting to pick up the theme of this whole psalm. We have all we need in the Word of God because it points us to the God of the Word Dr. George Zemeck, who recently passed away and wrote a commentary on Psalm 119, and it was basically the textbook for classes and sermons that he taught on this psalm. He points, you don't need to turn there, but a parallel passage in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. You're welcome to turn there or just jot it down even in your notes or next to this verse. This is what Proverbs 3, 34 states, though God scoffs at the scoffers, Yet he gives hope to the afflicted. So one of the primary things that we must do in the face of persecution is remember how God views that situation. Maybe you feel the weight of scoffers at work, relationships, maybe even in your family relationships. Maybe you've been the direct target of ridicule because of your desire to be unwavering in your obedience to God and His Word. Maybe you're just kind of in the foxhole seeing the bullets fly around, but you see the storm on the horizon and say, most likely, even if I haven't yet, I will be the direct target of ridicule and persecution because of my desire to stay steadfast to the Word of God. No matter your circumstance, This proverb that is parallel to this verse teaches us what God will do eventually, even if it's not immediately. 
In other words, basically the very arrows of persecution that these scorners and mockers are, are driving into this psalmist, God says, one day those are going to be reversed. And unless they repent, those arrows of scoffing and mocking are going to sink into their own flesh and into their own soul. But not only does God say, I will I will turn the scoffers scoffing back on them, but he also says, I will give hope to those who are afflicted. He gives grace to the humble. And so because of all of this that the psalmist knows, he resists the temptation to apostatize. But you read this and say, wow, um, how did he get this kind of confidence. How in the face of all of this does he not turn aside from God's law? Is he, is he just kind of pulling himself up by the bootstraps? Does he put the earbuds in every morning, stand in front of the mirror and listen to Eye of the Tiger to get himself ready to face a world of persecution? No, because we cannot separate verses 49 to 50 with this verse. Where does this kind of determination and active hope and desire to obey come from? Where does this comfort in the midst of this weighty affliction and mocking come from? Well, as we've already seen, it's the active work of God in his life, making God's promises real to him, causing his heart to have hope, reviving his spiritual life giving his soul strength to live for God's glory. In other words, this kind of response is only due to God's effectual grace in the life of this psalmist. And again, let's be reminded, that which gave him the grace and the strength to obey God in the midst of persecution, we have all, if not more, of the tools at our disposal. Moving to verse 52 He says, I've remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and I comfort myself. He asserts his personal faithfulness in verse 51. And here, he's applying God's faithfulness to his situation. If you recall in verse 49, he's asking God to pay attention or to remember. Now in verse 52, he's the one doing the remembering. And what does the fact that he's recalling something or remembering something, remember, he's human, he's finite, he's not omniscient. We can, we can infer from this the fact that he's recalling or remembering something that at one point he already knew. So if you're shaking hands with somebody and you know you've met them before and you're just going through the files of your brain to try to remember their name. I knew I had it in there one time or someone's phone number, whatever it is. It's something that was already within us and now we're trying to recall it. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And what is he remembering? He's remembering God's ordinances from of old. And these ordinances, some of your translation may use the word judgments, These likely refer specifically to God's past acts of deliverance. So he's enveloping himself in being reminded of how God has delivered his people in the past. And again, he's not asking for anything new. These are all truths and narratives in those copies of Scripture that he had He had everything already to be reminded of how God deals kindly with his people. So we, like he did, just need to remember what God has already revealed to us, what's already in our memory banks, but also we need to be challenged to continue to make deposits through our time in the word and being under the teaching of God's word, depositing these truths, these ordinances of God, these past deliverances of God so that we can remember and recall them, especially in the face of persecution. This also really has a a deep and profound effect on the way that we pray to God. Just like he did in verse 49, he's asking the Lord to pay attention to the servant, remember those things that you've promised me. 
On the flip side, God will not answer prayer that is contrary to God's word or just prayers that flat out don't have anything to do with God's word or what he's revealed to us. Maybe to use an illustration, at one point all of us were small children. Maybe you're experiencing right now because you have small children in the home. Maybe you remember those days. Either way, small children, especially when they begin to talk and they begin to remember things, they they often will say, Dad or Mom, you promised. (laughs) You promised. Now, sometimes those are things that say, yeah, but we put a lot of conditions on that promise, son. (laughs) If this happens, if your room is clean, if all of this happens and we have time before bed, yeah, then we can go to the park or we can go to the pool or you can fill in the blank. Or sometimes it's like, I never said that. Ever. I don't know where you got that from. However, when you do make a promise to your child, yeah, I did. I promised that after dinner we're going to have some ice cream for, for dessert. And you just fill in the blank with any of those promises. Those are promises that even as sinful, fallen moms and dads or aunts and uncles, grandparents, we love to come through on. It gives them joy, and it gives us great delight to see them embrace that promise, embrace that gift. Well, the same needs to be true if we're to pray like this psalmist. If we're to recall God's promises and turn that into requests, God delights to answer prayers that are in line with his revealed word. Here's some. Heavenly Father, do you remember that promise that you gave me that you would never leave me or forsake me? God, do you remember that promise that no matter how much I do, if I bring my sin before you in humble confession, you are faithful and just to forgive them all? Father, do you remember that you, you personified yourself like a loving earthly father? And you said that you will have compassion on me like a father has compassion for his child. Remember that you said that you know my frame, you know I'm dust, and yet in your grace and compassion you treat me accordingly. Those are are appeals that God loves to answer. So that's why we must know the word so that we can pray according to the word. And I love again the fact that we see here in this verse that God continues to work in tandem in relationship to the psalmist's dependence on the word of God. He keeps drawing from the well of God's word. The Lord then supplies the needed comfort and refreshment that God promises in his word Without the gift of God's word, the psalmist understands, I have no hope. But what he does is he relies on the means of grace God has given him, most particularly God's word in this set of psalms. Even the grace to have a mind to remember and recall things that we've heard and learned before. And then he relies on God's word and then relies on God's promise that he will provide grace through the means of our studying and relying on God's word. And so the comfort that he receives here in verse 52, it's all of grace. It's an undeserved gift from a good God. And so this goodness of God in verse 51 allowed the psalmist to assert his own desire to be faithful Verse 52, he applies God's faithfulness. And now in verse 3, he admits that he has a zeal. Verse 53, there's burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. George Zemeck uses the word an inflamed zeal to describe this burning indignation. So his view now, compared to verse 51... He was relaying the effect of the scorner's personal mocking of him, the personal attacks. And now it's as if he's zooming out and he's observing the world around him 
And he looks at just the fields of wickedness that fill his view. And so this inflamed zeal, again, it's in this passive form, so it's coming upon him. It's seizing him. It's gripping him and shaking him to the core. These are wicked men who reject the very words of God. Now, why would that well up within him this burning indignation? Well, what has the word of God already meant to him? The words of God, the psalmist walks in them. He reminds himself of them. He finds comfort in them. He receives spiritual life from them. No wonder when he sees the wicked literally trampling his source of comfort and life, he is gripped with this zeal and this indignation. And note that in this verse, he's not concerned with his own reputation, and he's not concerned with his own comfort. What he's most concerned about is the sullying of God's name by those who have no concern for God's law. So his, his reaction to this wickedness is centered on the fact that the glory of God is being slighted, not the fact that he's in a difficult circumstance or receiving persecution. And how does he react? What, what is this inflamed zeal due to him? Well, it's, it's not, he doesn't react in doom and gloom. He doesn't buy a bunker and hide himself. He doesn't go on a monastic journey and become a monk to try to escape it. He doesn't throw himself a pity party. He doesn't get bitter and angry and start lashing out at the culture and trying to find every outlet he can to make his views known because that would betray a sinful focus on himself and the fact that his comfort is being, being um, shaken up. But rather, as one commentary states, the actions of the wicked actually drive him to a deeper loyalty. The spirit of the psalmist can actually be even better described as loyal rather than zealous and hopeful and humble rather than proud. And so as we, again, see, many have already experienced it and continue to see the, the legitimacy of the fact that there seems to be a storm cloud of persecution that's only going to grow toward God's people. We should be looking to say, what's an evidence, even in my own life or us as a corporate body, what's an evidence of us reacting biblically to persecution? We see it right here. Humble attitudes, hopeful attitudes, a deepening growth and love for God's word and a desire to obey it even more fervently. But living a life that's punctuated in maybe small snippets of persecution, maybe this psalmist or some of you would say, you know what, at this point it feels like my life is more defined by persecution than anything else. It's, it, it's tiresome. It batters you emotionally and spiritually and physically and often can, can leave you or us feeling alone in the world. Like the old song says, just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. But in this last section of verses, we'll see that the source of comfort for afflicted pilgrims And the source of boldness for persecuted Christians is also the source of joy for alienated pilgrims. So point number three, God's word gives us joy when we're alienated. We saw in verse 49 and 50, God's word provides comfort in affliction. 51 to 53, God's word provides boldness in persecution now, point three, God's word provides joy even in alienation. Joy in alienation. 
Look at your text again in verse 54. Your statutes are my songs. In the house of my pilgrimage, O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. In verse 54, we see the psalmist begin to articulate his song. The psalmist knows he's a pilgrim. He knows he's a sojourner. And I don't know about you and your family. I'm sure what I'm about to say is going to shock and surprise many of you about our family. But when we go on a road trip or even just going around town, we like to pass the time with music. We listen to it. We sing along with it. We even did so on the way to church tonight. But cultures from the beginning of time have always created, enjoyed, embraced music. And it's especially dear to people who go through difficult circumstances, maybe those who are alienated from their home country and just hearing or humming or singing to themselves some of the songs of their home country brings a slight sense of joy and remembrance flooding back of days gone by. It was true of God's people the psalm that, end, that comes right after Psalm 119, Psalm 120, going to Psalm 134. Many commentators have grouped those psalms and called them the psalms of ascent. Maybe called them even pilgrim songs. Because many commentators believe these were psalms that God's people sang as they made their pilgrimages back to Jerusalem for the three main Jewish festivals. So singing these psalms together, yeah, I'm sure it helped pass the time, but it did more than that. It united their hearts in praising God. It reminded them of God's salvation in the past. Maybe even in our own culture, we can think of African-American spirituals, songs that were sung in the fields or sung as families, even gatherings and gathered worship as a way to encourage their downcast spirits, oftentimes even helping them as they were working, work together in unity of time and of rhythm. And of course, a theme of many of those spirituals is expressing hope in a land yet to come because their life in this current land was so difficult. And this psalmist also felt the reality of being a stranger and a pilgrim. He turned to song as one way to keep his soul encouraged on this journey. And shouldn't shock us by now, what was the theme of his songs? Your statutes are my songs. It's the word of God. George Zemeck says this, God's statutes provide divine resources which allow him to praise even from the pits of persecution and peril. Again, we can then make an implication. You think of him journeying on a pilgrimage. Someone starts singing. It's usually something that they already have in their head and in their heart. He had God's word stored up. It was his constant companion, and thus it influenced even the songs that he sang. But isn't this what Colossians 3, 16 and 17 teach us in the New Testament? Those who have given the word of God a rich dwelling in their hearts, what is one of the overflows of God's word dwelling richly in someone's heart? They sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to one another and to the Lord as a way of admonishing and instructing and encouraging. We have to realize that the psalmist doesn't view music or even these word-based songs as a way to get rid of his problems. Often when I'm studying or reading in my office, down in the basement all by myself so I can listen to whatever music I want, basically however loud I want. But if I'm studying, I've found on YouTube these, they're like ambient music channels where They'll take maybe themes from some of your favorite soundtracks or even classical music themes, and they'll just kind of play them. Sometimes there's even like background sounds along with it. It's just a nice 
calming, relaxing way to kind of fill some of the white noise while you're reading or studying. As I was looking for one the other day, one popped up and it promised that if you listen to this playlist, you're going to forget all your troubles. Yeah, right. His, so this psalmist, was that's not how he viewed his music. It wasn't this pixie dust that he sprinkled on his problems to make them fly away. Just like singing the psalms of ascent for God's people did not make the long journey to Jerusalem any less long or less arduous or less dangerous. Singing African-American spirituals did not make the sin of slavery go away. Even singing the word of God does not rid us of our trials, but when the songs we sing are rooted in the direct words of God, our songs then can point us to the one who promised us hope in the midst of all of these afflictions. Word-based songs give our voices scriptural expressions. That in many times, if we were honest, especially when we gather for corporate worship, the truth that we sing, it's stuff and truth and doctrine and realities that we know to be true, but often we don't feel them to be true. But the fact that we sing them and we have them points our hearts, even our emotions, to what we know to be true, and that allows us to even live with a settled hope and joy in the midst of difficult trials. And where does he sing these songs? In the house of his pilgrimage. It could be a metaphor for his circumstances. It could literally be a place where he's lodging, but the principle remains the same. He's a pilgrim. He's lodging somewhere. He knows it's not his home. But God's word, just as he did, when we welcome it into the doors of our heart, provides an unending stream of songs that help us endure the rigors of life as a pilgrim. Moving to verse 55, he once again says, I need to remember something. Verse 55, O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. By way of review, in verse 49, the psalmist asks God to remember his word to his servant. In verse 52, The psalmist says, I will remember your judgments, your decrees, your acts of past deliverance. But now, in verse 55, what does he remember? The name of the Lord, Yahweh. And it leads him to obedience. Perhaps you're familiar with the famous Shakespearean play, Romeo and Juliet. In the famous balcony scene, Juliet has one of the most famous lines in the whole play where she's out there and she doesn't know Romeo can hear her and she's just bemoaning her situation and she just says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Now, if you're familiar with this storyline, Romeo and Juliet, they're forbidden to marry because there's an ongoing feud between their families. Romeo was a Montague. Juliet, as she's saying this, is attempting, even if it's just to herself, to prove that one's name, in one sense, is meaningless when compared to the quality and characteristics of the one who owns that name. Or in her analogy, a rose. What she's saying is, I don't care what you call it, if it looks like a rose and it smells like a rose, it's a rose. Its inherent characteristics are more important than what you call it. But unfortunately for, Rome, for her, Romeo's last name carried a deep significance. A significance so great that they were still forbidden to be together. And spoiler alert, there's a very dramatic ending. And we'll leave it at that. But in this verse... The psalmist recognizes that the very name of his God is embedded with rich truth about the character of his God. 
The Lord, the name Yahweh, attests to God's self-existence. He is the I Am. In Exodus 34, the Lord says this about his name to Moses. I'm merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities. So God's name reveals his character. Proverbs 18.20, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. God's protection of his people is embedded in his name. Isaiah 42a, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God's rightful claim of singular glory is in his name. Spurgeon says it succinctly, God's name is his divine character as far as it is revealed. So let's answer Juliet's question, what's in a name? Well, this psalmist knew much about what the name of the Lord meant. And the fact that he recalls it spurs him on to greater obedience to a loving, gracious, self-existent, all-glorious God. And then he ends it in verse 56. This has become mine, but I observe your precepts. Some of your translations, the, the translators inserted something other than this has become mine, it's because there's nothing there in the Hebrew. The NASB translated it exactly literally. This is mine, or this has become mine. And so it causes the question, well, what, what is yours, psalmist? What are we supposed to learn from this? And the best explanation that I found connects the end of verse 55 to that statement at the beginning of verse 56, which then connects it to the end of verse 56. In other words, he's saying, I keep your law. This, the desire and ability to keep your law, Lord, it's mine. You've given it to me. Therefore, I keep your precepts. Commentator Ross says that this keeping of God's precepts was by divine enablement. It was a gift allotted to him to obey. Reminds us of what Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will, the desire and ability to obey, and to work, the actual act of obedience for his, whose, God's good pleasure. So again, he's not on an ego trip here. I have this great ability and track record of obeying my God. But no, what he's teaching us is that when we see adherence to God's law in our life, In the life of someone else, in the life of this psalmist, it's only owing to God's gift of grace to him. So as we reflect on this psalm, this section of Psalm 119, we see that God's word was the most faithful companion that this pilgrim could have ever had. It brought him comfort in suffering, boldness in persecution, Joy, even in alienation. And although imperfectly we know it because he asks for protection from sin and forgiveness from sin in other sections of the psalm, we know he was not perfect, but he does provide for us a healthy example of one who continually grew in his love for God's word, then grew in his dependence upon God's word. And to help us maybe aid our memory in remembering how this Psalm section of the psalm is broken up. Let me just leave us with three implications that are very tightly tethered to the three main points. So hopefully if you remember one, you will remember the other, vice versa. If you remember in verses 49 to 50, we saw that God's people need God's word in their earthly pilgrimage because God's word provides comfort in affliction. So what do we learn from this psalmist in these two verses? Here's an implication. He teaches us how to trust in suffering. He teaches us how to trust in suffering. He is able to trust in the midst of affliction because he literally lives in the word of God. He draws on what he knows about God's promises. He relies on God to be faithful in acting upon those promises 
And so his reliance on the Word of God betrays a reliance on the God of the Word, the one God that through his Word brings hope and comfort. So we we learn how to trust God in suffering. Verses 51 to 53, we saw that the second reason God's word, God's people need God's word is because God's word provides boldness when we're per, in persecution. So this psalmist in these stretch of verses teaches us how to honor God in persecution. How do I honor God in persecution? The more intense the mocking, the more intense his desire was to conform himself to God's word. He knew the atmosphere of evil around him, but his zeal and his indignation was driven primarily because God's glory was being slighted, not because his life was now harder. So we learn that God enables us to endure external persecution by, number one, giving us a deeper desire to obey God, and number two, a deeper zeal for God's glory. So he teaches us how to honor God in persecution. Lastly, verses 54 to 56, God's word, as we saw, provides joy for God's people in alienation. Through this stretch of verses, the psalmist teaches us how to exalt God in our weariness. How do I exalt God in my weariness? Well, God's word just naturally flowed out of the psalmist because he was saturated in it. It came out in his songs. Spurgeon said this about Bunyan. Perhaps you've heard this description. He said, if you were to prick John Bunyan, he would bleed Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He said, yeah, that's John Bunyan. He had no education. He just studied the word on his own. And he had a wicked, wicked past, if you ever want to read his testimony. And yet, because he just dove into God's word and saturated himself in it, he was able then to just exude a love for it and an obedience to it. Now, sometimes in our right desire, as good students of the Scripture, we're very careful rightfully so, not to cherry-pick scriptures that suit our own needs. We shy away, though, sometimes because of that desire to actually apply God's promises to our lives when they're meant to be applied. Say, well, I can't rip that one verse out of context. i got to study the whole thing. Well, godly men, even like the psalmist, didn't think that way. He was not afraid to acknowledge, yes, all of Scripture is profitable, but there are some circumstances where some portions of God's Word are much more profitable for me because of my circumstance. Again, he says, I remember your acts of past deliverance. So yes, observing and reading the law was very important for the psalmist so that he knew how to obey the Word, but under intense persecution, where do you think he went? God, I need deliverance. Let me be reminded of how you've delivered your people in the past. And Spurgeon himself gives us a good example in this. He is known to have written down in a little book, a book of promises. When he found one, he'd write it down and he'd keep it. And I'm sure almost daily he would bring it out, depending on his circumstance, and go to a particular promise of God's word and remind himself of it. So let me leave you with what Spurgeon wrote in an introduction to one of his sermons about God's promises as we wrap up this evening. In his introduction to his sermon, Spurgeon says this, The promises of God are to the believer an inexhaustible mine of wealth. Happy is it for him if he knows, so again, this implies we need to know how to study our Bibles, But happy is it for him if he knows how to search out their secret veins and enrich himself with their hid treasures. Uses another illustration. The promises of God are like an armory containing all manner of offensive and defensive weapons. Blessed is he who has learned to enter into the sacred arsenal, put on the breastplate and the helmet to lay his hand to the spear and to the sword. 
The promises of God are to the believer a surgery, or in our common term, a pharmacy, in which he finds all manner of restoratives and blessed elixirs. He shall find therein an ointment for every wound, a cordial for every faintness, a remedy for every disease. Blessed is he who is well skilled in heavenly pharmacy and knoweth how to lay hold on the healing virtues of the promises of God. One more illustration, the promises are to the Christian a storehouse of food. There is granaries which Joseph built in Egypt, or as the golden pot wherein the unrotting manna was preserved. Blessed is he who can take the five barley loaves and fishes of promise and break them till his 5,000 necessities be supplied. And he's able to gather up baskets full of fragments. Oh, how unutterably rich are the promises of our faithful, covenant-keeping God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Word of God, which points us to you as the God of the Word. Thank you for the example of this psalmist, who in the midst of affliction and persecution and weariness, knew where to go so well acquainted with the scriptures that he could find promises and words that you had directly given to him through the revelation of scripture in which he could find comfort and boldness and even joy. May we follow his example. May we be even more spurred on to study your word so that we have a mine house, a treasure trove of promises to sustain us in our pilgrimage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.